Well, good morning, everybody. Um, something I forgot to put on the announcements I meant to. Um, this has obviously been something that, fortunately, <laughs> it's been easy to forget about. Our gospel meeting with Jerome Jackson is the second weekend of October, October 7th through the 10th. So keep that, keep that in mind, and um, let's be trying to really use the time that we have to uh, talk about it with others and invite, invite others to that. Um, so we're going to be doing uh, our lesson this morning on the yearly theme of going through the book of Numbers. And I hope as we've gone through this that um, you've seen the value of so many things in God's word that maybe on a cursory reading you may either just not see why it's valuable or what this is for. Um, whereas the book of Numbers, I feel, is such a diverse book and filled with so many treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it's benefited me greatly to go through this book. And so I hope that it's encouraged you greatly as well. And we're going to be in 25 and 26. We're going to spend the majority of our time in chapter 25. This is at the end of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And the entire first generation that came out of Egypt is, well, in our scripture reading, we saw them die. So in chapter 26, it's the census of the second generation at the end of the census, which is just recording of names and numbering. When uh, they record all of the number of the people of Israel in this generation, God says not one of them was left who came out of Egypt, except obviously Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. Uh, so they were the only ones that survived the um, first generation being killed. And you remember why? When they came out of Egypt, they went to the border of Canaan and they didn't place their faith in God, but instead they determined that they wanted to return back to Egypt and they were on the way to stone Moses until God appeared in a cloud at the tent of meeting and stopped the people from acting on their desire. And Moses interceded and pleaded with God that he show them mercy and God sentenced them to 40 years in the wilderness, which maybe looking at that from a different perspective wasn't just a punishment on the people, but for God to say, I will invest more. I'll give more than I gave you before. It's kind of like a way to saying, you know what? I, I will take responsibility for your lack of faith. Let's spend 40 years together rebuilding and building faith and restoring faith. So we're going to see in chapter 25 and 26 the blessing of God's jealousy. And as we get into this chapter, it's really important that we remember how much God has invested into his people. Um, that we remember some of the things that have just recently happened here. In chapter 21, at the end of the chapter, they got to uh, their last destination on the other side of the Jordan from Jericho. The first nation that they're going to take, the first city, when they get into the land, is going to be Jericho. So they're at their last stop. They conquered Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, as kind of like a, a very encouraging down payment of what's to come. They conquered these two kings and their peoples that came against them to wage war. God gave Israel victory. He gave them their land, and it gives them a greater assurance in what's awaiting them very shortly on the other side of the Jordan. All of these things that they've been anticipating in this 40 years Balak, king of Moab, overseeing Israel, and this would be kind of a picture of what you would see. Ba uh, Balaam, or Balak, king of Moab, because he was afraid of Israel, hired Balaam, a Gentile prophet, to curse Israel. 
But in chapter 23 and 24, God keeps turning Balaam's attempts to curse Israel into a blessing. And God says just incredible things about the nation, how there is no divination against Israel, how he sees no trouble among them, how it's like they are the horns of a wild ox and all who curse them will be cursed, all who bless them will be blessed. It's, it's extraordinary. And so God has not only been disciplining the nation, but he's also been, he's been blessing them investing in them, protecting them, preserving them. And as we've already seen in the scripture reading, is God has been blessing and protecting the nation, not only within the nation, outside of the nation, here's where they end up. And so we're going to look at this with the sin of the nation first in verses 1 through 6. We'll see the solution to that sin at the end of the chapter, 7 through uh, verse 18. And then we'll see the second census in verse 26. So let's reread verses 1 through 6. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then, behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So on the board here, I've said, as God has been actively blessing and protecting Israel, they prostitute themselves with the Moabites and the Midianites. In verse 1, it says in the New American Standard that they were playing the harlot with the daughters of Moab. When it says they played the harlot or prostituted themselves or even, I think, the ESV, the English Standard Version, I think a few of you use that. It uses the word they were whoring themselves or they played the whore. That strong language is very appropriate. And I think that's, that's not just meant to convey the sexual intercourse that Israel is having with these women, but also the principle that they were whoring against the Lord. So you notice in verse 3, Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So this wasn't just an issue of like physical immorality. And I, I, I'm hesitant to use the word like spiritual prostitution, because really what God does through the Bible is to convey that it's not just this like intangible, mysterious thing that we can't possibly fathom or understand, like this weird mystical thing, our relationship with God and spiritual adultery. There is a reality to the fact that as a nation, they were whoring themselves and joining themselves like a, a prostitute to this false god of the Moabites and the women of Moab. And I think we really need to work on being horrified and appalled by this and really understand just how shocking this is. Think about the last time Israel was involved with idolatry. If you remember throughout the wilderness, you know, Ezekiel will mention that they carried idols with them through the wilderness, but at least in Numbers, God never actually directly references that. The last time we've seen idolatry was back at Mount Sinai. When Moses was on the mountain, the people of Israel uh, 
they asked Aaron to make for themselves golden calf, and God determined to destroy the nation at that point. Well, after Moses interceded for the people and God chose to show them great mercy, ironically, in Exodus 34, right after that, when God determined he would dwell among the people and continue to lead them and continue to bless them, he warned them, do not join with any of the idols of the people to where you are going because they may seduce you to eat food to their gods and join them in their idolatry. And he said, for I am a jealous God. And so God emphasized at that time that he is jealous for his people. And with jealousy, there is love. I think the more you invest in a person, the more power you give to that person to hurt you. And I think we really need to understand this how invested God is in his people, how much he loves his people. And again, just turn very quickly back to Numbers chapter 23 and look at verse 20 and 21 and and just, I really would like for us to understand what's implied in the blessing God pronounces on Israel through Balaam from a distance. Look at Numbers 23 verse 20. Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he is blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. So as God is viewing Israel with such shocking hopefulness and even innocence what they are doing to themselves when we get back to Israel is is horrendous doing what they did in Exodus when they were at Mount Sinai so quickly departing from God and and mind you as Balaam had been attempting to curse the people we find out in chapter 31 in chapter 31 verse 16 It was Balaam's counsel to Moab to do this to Israel, to like further attempt to try to get God to curse Israel, which obviously they brought a curse on themselves to a degree, but it certainly did not stop the nation or overthrow the nation by any means. So again, if we see how much God loves his people, how much he invests in them, that gives us, I think, a greater context to understand how devastating this is that they would so quickly do this. I don't think there's any good way to illustrate this that gives us too much of a clear idea of just how hurtful this is, but I do want to try to bring up two things. Number one, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think when we see Jesus and his suffering, the emotional heartache he had as he went to the cross, what we are seeing is the heart behind the scenes, the emotion behind the scenes that God has always had when dealing with the harlotry of his people. You know, you think about parents of young children. Can, can young children, when you discipline them, and I mean really young, like two, three, four, can they appreciate the emotion that you feel behind the scenes when you have to discipline them or when they do things that pain you? It, is, is that going to matter to them even if, if you try to communicate to them or show that to them? You know, there, there's a sense where, you know, I'm not a parent, but there's a sense where that may like overwhelm them and actually make things harder, Right? So although we don't see it talking about how much this grieved God and and just hurt his heart, 
what we see in Jesus is what was always true about God behind the scenes. That God has always had a deeply broken heart in dealing with the harlotry of his people. This isn't just God punishing for the sake of punishing. I think it's God trying to minimize the consequence and resolve the issue as speedily as possible so he can continue to bless the people. Secondly, so firstly, Jesus and his suffering shows how pained God has always been by sin. Secondly, we need to understand that God is a person. And I know that might sound weird, but God is continuously through the word showing us that he has emotions, that he, he feels things, that he's not just this interpersonal foggy cloud thing, but he is, he is a being who feels. And I want you to imagine a married couple where one spouse is working so hard in the relationship they see their spouse in such an incredibly high way. They, they fully believe that they are working through every problem faithfully and things are getting resolved and the marriage is just working in a great way. And as that spouse is home by themselves, their other spouse comes in with another person and has sexual intercourse with them in the exact same room where they are staying. And I know that sounds bizarre, but that's exactly what's happening here. Is what we find out the name of this man, Zimri, in verse 6, brings this Midianite woman in front of the tents of meeting and Moses and just brazenly just has intercourse with her with everybody seemingly knowing about it and, and no shame. And I think that just as one example of what was happening right in front of God. Again, we just really need to understand the horror of this and not just be so callous to think, yeah, the people, they get involved with idolatry a lot. And I mean, that's just kind of the story of the Old Testament, right? And yeah, God deals with it and the story goes on. No, we, we cannot have that view of these events. And another thing we see throughout the Bible is idolatry and sexual immorality are very consistently tied together. Usually where there is idolatry, what we consistent, consistently see is packaged with that is sexual immorality. And I think the reason for that is purity and self-control, they lose context, they, they, they lose meaning, value, when we're not looking to God's glory and when we're not understanding the work that God has done to bring us into his glory. You know, the purpose of faith, I think we see it in Phineas. You know, Phineas saw the situation, obviously, much differently than anybody else did. But man, faith isn't just to believe information about God. It's to believe as God believes. And then for that to lead us to see as God sees. For us to feel as he feels. And you notice God says, in a sense, Phineas has felt what I have felt about the situation. He saw what I saw. But feeling what God feels, we should seek what he seeks. We should do as he does, be as he is. That's, that's the purpose of faith. Ironically, with that, Psalm 106, as it recounts many acts of unfaithfulness in Israel and how God was just constantly working to show mercy to the nation, it says that it was counted to Phineas for righteousness and his descendants forever. And that phrase, counted to him as righteousness, is the same phrase as Abraham's faith. And so what Phineas did, we'll see, is more an act of faith than it is just something done out of sheer personal indignation. 
But remember 1 Corinthians 6. So again, with this idea that if we lose context with God's glory and the work that he's done, then the meaning of self-control, godly self-control, is gone. 1 Corinthians 6, where, where Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the fact that they're involved in prostitution. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you and that you are not your own? You have been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So Paul's appeal to the Corinthians isn't just, hey, don't you know sexual immorality is bad? Stop it. You're doing a bad thing. You should feel guilty. No, he says, look, what you're doing betrays the glory of God and what he's done to bring you into that glory. God paid for you through the death of Jesus and you're a temple now of the Holy Spirit. That gives us context for self-control. I think another way that we need to understand this event is something that is still true. The only way that the problem of sin can be resolved is through death. You notice in verse 4, and this is, by the way, an interesting thing in Numbers, usually Moses has to appeal to God or the people have to appeal to God. It's interesting. This may just be a fact that this is the second generation. God intercedes first. God's the one who initiates the solution. It's not Moses, and it's not Phineas either. God, God does the first act of intervention. He says, take all the leaders of the people, execute them in broad daylight so that the solution can come. The fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Verse 5, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Phineas, piercing them through, and this isn't even taking into account something that did not need to happen. None of this needed to happen. But at the end of the chapter, God is going to tell Moses, you need to be hostile to the Midianites for what they've done. Chapter 31 of Numbers, Israel is going to go to Midian and they're going to kill five kings of Midian and the people and Balaam. They're going to kill Balaam for vengeance for these things. None of that needed to happen. But because of the sin of Peor, the only way that it could be resolved was through death. And I want you to think how true that is for us. Jesus bore the penalty of death for us. And the only way that we can live with him is still we need to die with him. You know, so even though we're not physically dying in baptism, in a very real sense, it's reminding us that the only way the problem of sin could be resolved is through death. First, the death of Jesus, but you joining him in that death that you could live with him. And there's another way that I think we have to keep this in mind. Romans 8.13, talking about the continued process of our growth and sanctification. It says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, and those would be like sinful things, you will live. So this idea that sin can only be resolved through death is not just something that Jesus did. It's not just something that happened when we were baptized into Christ. But the kind of indignation we should have to put sin to death is something that remains true for us and ought to remain true for us. And ultimately in Romans 8, when he talks about those who are led by the Spirit of God are the true children of God, this is what it means to be led by the Spirit of God, to put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the flesh. So again, just to convey that although this can seem very brutal, 
For one, God is minimizing consequences, not maximizing consequences for this. And for two, we really need to understand death is the fair penalty for sin, and that still remains true, that sin can only be resolved by putting it to death. So let's, let's think more about the solution here with seven through the end of the chapter and how Phineas stepped in. Verse seven. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Which, by the way, is kind of a window into what could have happened and even maybe what was about to happen. Verse 12. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was head of the people of a father's household of Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister, who was slain on the day of the plague of Peor. So again, I don't quite know how to visualize the situation. It seems like things had really descended into chaos. So I don't know if judgment was being executed actively when verse 6 is happening. You know, God tells Moses, kill all the leaders of the congregation, Moses tells the judges, slay everybody who's joined themselves to Baal of Peor. But then in verse 6, Moses and everybody was weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So I don't know if just the situation was so grievous and just so overwhelming that they hadn't begun executing judgment. We see that God had sent a plague in verse 9 that killed 24,000. So I just, I don't know exactly how to visualize this, right? Were people being killed by one another and then as that's happening, the sin is still continuing. Either way, in verse 6, Moses is weeping. The people are weeping. They're overwhelmed by the situation. Uh, Zimri very brazenly takes this woman, Cosby, in front of the tent of meeting. And not Moses, but Phineas, grandson of Aaron, grabs a spear, follows them into the tents, and not to be graphic about it, but he finds them in the tents, and pierces them both through with a spear, and he kills them. And I kind of think about this like the shot heard around the world. You know, it's, it's almost like I imagine when he did this, there was something about it that was so appropriate and shocking, appropriately shocking, that it's like everything stopped. You know, it's like the chaos stops, the sinful actions stop, just everything stops. And God then speaks about Phineas and blesses him for what he did. So there's just, there's something, something is very special about what Phineas did besides the judgments God had told them to execute. And something about it just puts everything to a stop. And once again, how is intercession made? Is it by an animal? Again, it's 
very interesting. Never in the book of Numbers is intercession made through animal sacrifice. It is always from a person standing in the gap between God, his judgment, and the people he's going to judge. And I think the sacrifices really are meant to be snapshots of these realities to connect people to the Messiah. So again, intercession not made through animal, but by priest. And with God giving his seal of approval on this, I think it kind of gives us an insight on what the role of a priest is. And, and with this, I want to put into your mind in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, when Christians are called a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And we find here that one of the primary roles of a priest is to ensure that God's holiness is being enforced and exalted among his people. And I think that's what we see in the New Testament. That's what we see Paul the Apostle doing among the churches and in the epistles. We see that being the thing that he keeps emphasizing and strongly, solemnly encouraging in the work of a local church together is we have a responsibility to make sure that God's holiness is both being enforced in our relationships, but also exalted among one another as well. And I want you to think, you know, if we didn't have the insights of God's testimony here, it would be maybe a little bit harder. You know, is Phineas being a troublemaker? Was he going overboard? But was he a peacemaker? Notice in verse 12, God said, I make with him a covenant of peace. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Does that just mean that you have very good relationships with everybody and everything's taken lightly, you're passive about everything, nothing's a big deal ever, no confrontation, no contention, no tension. No, true peace is centered on and defined by God's holiness. That's real peace. When the world thinks they have peace, if they don't have peace with God, there is no peace, right? And so the peace that Phineas brought through his jealousy of God's purpose, his will, his holiness among the people, that is real peace. And so Phineas, as he acted in a way that may seem extreme, was really being a peacemaker among God's people. You notice in verse 11, what he had done had turned away God's wrath. He was jealous for them so that he did not destroy Israel. And in verse 13, God favored Phineas's actions so much. It, even, it goes beyond Phineas himself. And I think the promise in verse 13 is tied together with what Jesus is and who he ultimately became. And what do you think, again, I don't know how to picture the scene, but I do want to make some comments about verse 6 again, compared to what Phineas did. Was it enough to mourn over the problem? You know, I think Moses and the others that were mourning were obviously very hurt and overwhelmed, but that, did that solve the problem? Did that make peace? Was it enough just to talk about the problem? to raise awareness about the problem. No, what, what God said, although it needed to be followed through on, just talking about it didn't solve the problem either. And was it enough just to be indignant about it or bothered by it or to see that this, this isn't right, someone's got to do something? No, Phineas acted. And when the sin was put to death, when it was done away with, then there could be peace. Then there was a solution. And I think it can be helpful to contrast this. I do want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and look at Eli's example as a negative contrast. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you have Eli, a high priest. And I've heard 
people talk about Eli, not, not here, um, but just in other places. I've heard Eli talked about in positive ways, and I just want to tell you, I do not think well of Eli in 1 Samuel. Um, I think he's quite the worthless priest, actually. And I think this is an example of that. And so if you think differently, I, I hope to convince you and, and help you see the contrast. 1 Samuel 2, through 25. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all, the pe- all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will med- mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. So just real quick, that last phrase, God desired to put them to death. Was Eli believing what God believed, seeing what God was seeing, feeling what God was feeling, seeking what God was seeking, doing what God wanted to do? No. And so there's layers of problems here. For one, why did he, he's, he's a high priest. So how are you hearing about your sons having sexual relations with women at the tabernacle and they were doing other abusive things there that, that aren't mentioned here directly. How are you hearing about this secondhand? How do you not already know about this? And secondly, this is an offense worthy of death. And so the whole like, my, my boys, I'm really hearing some bad things here. And so, you know, give some consideration to what you're doing. Wow, this is so far beyond that. I mean, we are so past the point of some kind of passive correction. Thirdly, in verse 27 through 36, God speaks to Eli directly. And it's a longer speech than you ever see in the entire book of Judges. And God tells Eli directly, you, so look at verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice? So he's talking to Eli, not just about his sons. He warns him he's going to be judged, his children are going to be judged, the priesthood's going to be taken away from them, given to someone else. It's going to be catastrophic. What does Eli do? Nothing. You know, in the next chapter, God tells the same thing to Samuel. And Eli threatens Samuel and says, May God so do to you and more so if you do not tell me what he said to you. Samuel tells him that God is going to judge him and his sons. And you know what Eli says? It's the Lord. He'll do what's good to him. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? I mean, wow. Eli, as the person who's to be upholding God's holiness, does nothing when he hears that his children are defiling the tabernacle and God says twice he is going to judge his children for what they're doing. He does nothing. We need to be really careful that we're not more like Eli. Eli was bothered. He didn't like what his sons were doing. But wow, what needed to be done and what God desired to be done went so far beyond what Eli was willing to do. Thus, Eli was a worthless priest. He may have done some good things, but in his priesthood, the nation, they sink, and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, and ah, it's, 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 there's a major rearrangement that God has to bring despite Eli and his sons. Again, we just have to be careful that we don't just be bothered by sin or bothered by problems in a local church, that we don't see things happening that we know need to change, but 
don't really actively seek a solution for it. Um, we need to be more like Phineas. Not that we need to be like spearing each other through with weapons, but that we do need to follow God's will and have his jealousy. And enough jealousy where we are willing to do the hard and gritty work that he tells a local church to do in relation to sin. And I think this gets to Ephesians 5. I think Phineas, he saw God's glory and he, he knew the kind of people that God was calling his people to be, that he had equipped his people to be. He knew they were right on the brink of going into Canaan and it's like everything was being just destroyed by this unnecessary just national sin that was going to cost them everything. So Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. We need to see the glory of God's purpose. We need to see the glory God has tended for his people. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That, and there's your purpose statement. Why did Jesus do all of these things? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What are we to do with that? Does this just happen magically, passively? Do we just come together one Sunday and all of a sudden this is exactly who we are? No, this is a calling. This is what God is calling us into and we need to be striving towards this. We need to strive to see the glory that God has given his people. We need to see the jealousy that he's had in Jesus to make it possible to be this and to share this glory with him. This is a responsibility. Phineas understood the responsibility of holiness. In the same way, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, as much as this is giving a responsibility to husbands, he's also giving a responsibility to the church and that we have to feel the weight in, in a good way that's based in grace, but we still need to feel the weight of that responsibility. All right. Go back to Numbers chapter 26. With this, God takes a census of the second generation. So I'm assuming that some of the second generation died in this plague, but surely anyone left of the first generation now has died. And we'll just kind of go over some general things with this. Um, you see the final number in verse 51. These are those who are numbered of the sons of Israel, 601,730. If you look on the board there, the first numbering was 603,550. And I think what we're meant to do in Book of Numbers, after the sin of Peor, my opinion is that we're supposed to be thinking, who's left? <laughs> I mean, man, just the nation's been sinking and being disciplined and like punishment, punishment, punishment. What's left of them? Man, are they like a couple thousand at this point? You know, so I, I think we're meant at this point to be fairly discouraged in the reading and thinking the nation's got to be just diminished and obliterated. And what we find out is God has nearly entirely preserved the original number of the sons of Israel despite all of the judgments. And I want you to think then how much God has been blessing the nation for that to be true. Tens of thousands and thousands of people have been lost in the judgments. So how do you, in the midst of so much loss, still maintain the same number? 
I would say that those who are left must be multiplying uh, pretty dramatically. And we see that with some of the nations. Some have been diminished. Uh, Simeon is 37,000 less. And remember, Zimri was a Simeonite and brought Cosby to his tent among his relatives. Maybe just how recent the judgment was is the reason why there are 37,000 left. But suffice it to say, that's catastrophic. And more people died in that plague than the entire tribe of Simeon at this point. Um, Notice Manasseh grew by 20,000. Notice Benjamin grew by 10,000. So as some tribes uh, diminished, some tribes actually grew by quite a bit. Judah was originally um, by far the largest tribe. It continues to be by far the the largest tribe. Um, I think from my view before, I think think this is true, is that Judah has over 10,000 more people than anybody else, both in the first census and second census. So Judah is by far the biggest tribe. But I mean, overall, it's only 1,820 difference between the first and second census. And I find that very astonishing. And I think what that teaches us is, again, as God was disciplining the nation with so much wisdom and so much care, he was also preserving them. Because as God judges and disciplines his people out of necessity, he never fails to show grace and to bless them as well. And all of the judgments that he has had to administer out of necessity to teach, to admonish, to correct, None of that has stopped his purpose from coming about. They're going into Canaan, I think, much stronger than before. They may have, you know, almost 2,000 less people. But what's left is going to be a people of greater faith, greater love for God, more zeal for his purpose. And so not only has God successfully preserved his nation on a numerical level, but he's made them a greater nation than they were before, all the while having to discipline them and judge them in a time frame that you would think would only diminish, diminish them and discourage them. The opposite has come about. Ultimately, I think this is a lesson in the glory of God's faithfulness. really want to encourage you to see that the main character of the book of Numbers is not Moses. It's not Israel. The main character of the book of Numbers is God himself. And the reason we're studying Numbers is because we need to study the character of God that is uniquely exhibited within this book. That's what we've been learning. And we've been learning lessons that remain eternally true about the incredible character that God has that was more than could have been imagined demonstrated in Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection. That's where we'll stop for this morning. If you're here this morning and you are not a part of God's people, um, God's people always struggle with embodying the glory of who we're called to be, but there is glory, and that glory will be fully realized in heaven when we are with him one day. If you are not a part of God's people, you're lost and separated from God, and as hard as it is, we need to hear the bad news that hell is real, and wrath and indignation will be sent against every soul who disobeys God and does not obey the gospel. And so there is a just continuous urgency that we need to take God more seriously and be willing to surrender to his will in Christ and do whatever it takes to respond to that in an appropriate way. If we can do that for you this morning, please come forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.